Where Dreams Come From is a podcast featuring successful people from around the world who have pursued their dreams to arrive at a station in life. I'm your host, Sanjeev Chatterjee. I'm a professor of cinema and journalism, and in my creative life, I make documentary films. I started this podcast to explore what it takes for people to follow their dreams. Imagine you're walking along a road in rural central India, in the state of Madhya Pradesh. A place where infrastructure is sparse and people continue to live in poverty, many excluded by circumstance to fully participate in India's heady economic development. It's quiet. And then you hear the unmistakable low rumble of a Royal Enfield bullet motorbike's four-stroke engine. And then you see it. It's blue in color, and astride it is a venerable European woman. My guest Ulrike Reinhardt grew up in Germany and discovered her gift as a basketball player early. Although her middle-class parents were not really happy about whom she chose to date, they did give her the freedom with sports and education. It seems that this freedom allowed her to live life on her own terms. In 2013, while on a trip to India, Ulrike was inspired to build a skate park for children in a village in central India. The thought was that a skate park could be instrumental in breaking down the barriers of caste, class and gender. Be a positive disruptor in an otherwise stagnant setting. Seven years on, it seems the experiment is thriving to the benefit of the children of Janwar, Madhya Pradesh and their families. Ulrike Reinhardt spoke to me recently from Portugal. Ulrike Reinhardt, uh, thank you so much for joining Where Dreams Come From. Thank you, Sanjeev, for having me. Ulrike, uh, can you tell me a little bit about where you grew up and what the circumstances of your childhood were? Yeah, I'm born in Germany in Heidelberg, a small, well-known student town in the suburbs. I was born into a middle-class family Nothing, nothing special. I, you know, I was the first one who went into a gymnasium and then also the first one who studied in the entire family. And uh, so far the only one as well. When I was like 10 years old, maybe 11 years old, I started to play basketball. Came pretty good at this. I was playing for the German national team. So uh, I could always split my time nicely between school and the sports, which gave me a lot of freedom. Do you remember uh, having any kind of a desire to be something in life uh, early on? As I said, I was playing basketball and uh, I was pretty good. I was someone, (laughs) so there was no, you know, there was no desire, no issue to become anything else than what I was. At school, I wasn't always, how shall I say, uh, brightest is, is probably the wrong word. I was a kind of lazy. And when I knew what I was going to study or what I wanted to do, then I just, you know, slowed down. When did you leave home and uh, where did you go? I left home in my last two years of studies. I was studying in Mannheim, which is like 20 kilometers away from Heidelberg. Uh, That was a good place to study economics. 
And uh, I actually, I had from very early on, I had a boyfriend, which was a big fight with my parents these days because I was quite young and he was like nine years older than me. So when I brought him back home, it was like, you know, ooh, it was the big chaos and disaster. But then by the time when I left him, it was a disaster again because everyone was expecting me to marry him. And I said, uh, no. So, and that was the time when I also, you know, I quit uh, with him. And I also then uh, decided to spend the last year and a half, two years in a student hostel uh, in Mannheim. As you're speaking, I hear that you were very independent-minded right from the beginning. I have to say I was really allowed to do anything when I was a kid regarding the sports. I didn't have so much freedom regarding the boyfriend but regarding the sports and, you know, when I was really little with all the other kids in the, uh, in the courtyard behind the house, it was almost like, you know, the kids now running around in Janbar. We were just there, the older ones taking care of the little ones. So I really, really had my freedom. After college, after studying economics? After my studies, I was working with Zweites Deutsches Fernsehen, which is Germany's biggest public television station and they actually offered me to do a PhD. So I had no intentions. I was also not the very best student, but I was fine enough so they could give me a, a special admission to, to do a PhD and they also allowed me to work together with a public broadcaster. I, I grew up in India and, uh, you know, our path was, of course, uh, guided by our parents to a large extent. Uh, education was essential. Uh, we came from middle class, upper middle class families. Education was essential. And that uh, job was important and you just did your job and you'd be a company man and you rose in the ranks and uh, that was the way to success. But what you're suggesting is different. What you're suggesting is figure it out as you go along. Absolutely. This is what I always did. And I always, you know, I don't know why it was the way it is, but I always had this freedom or I took the freedom. It's kind of essential to my life, you know, that, uh, that I just feel free to do things. And usually, uh, you know, you can make it. If you want it, you can make it. And it's then, as you become older, uh, it's like sometimes, you know, connecting the dots. And uh, this is something no theory can tell you. You have to live through. And uh, if you take a life like I have chosen, you know, then it's it actually becomes quite easy to connect the dots and to make things happen. I have uh, seen video of your riding through the Indian countryside on a blue bullet, Royal Enfield. Yeah. Uh, what was the path to that particular circumstance? I was in Madhya Pradesh, and this is a part of the world where there is simply no public transportation, right? You either uh, buy a car and get a driver or, uh, you know, you go on a motorbike. And I always had a motor scooter. 
and I love to ride a motor scooter, so I decided to buy a motorbike. Tell me the path to getting to India. So I came back to Europe after uh, California. My husband died. Uh, my kid was like three years old, four years old. So uh, I was thinking what to do. I had the option to go to New York or back home to Europe. So I decided I go back home. And uh, then I started to work as a freelancer. I raised my kid. I was, uh, and I thought, you know, Heidelberg is a pretty good place to raise a kid. So uh, I, I took this responsibility and, you know, I was... While uh, you were uh, in Germany, just before you, you moved to India, the profession was uh, freelance, I understand, but were, were you doing different kinds of jobs? Yeah, was I was... Something specific? Uh, I was working as a consultant, always engaged in change processes. So my clients were, for example, NATO, or I was also working for German government. Uh, I had banks, you know, all kind of organizations who wanted to drive change. And always uh, my, my specific thing was to uh, explain how important it is if you drive change uh, to be transparent and open regarding the outcome. So I do not believe that, you know, when you, or let's start this way, if you want to drive change, you have to create some kind of movement, right? Without movement, there is no change. If something is stuck, no change. So you need to disrupt to make the system move. And any kind of disruption, you know, can go Either way. Why did you uh, choose to build at that time? What, what was you, were you thinking when you said, let's build uh, the skate park? So for me, and now I'm coming back to my profession, what I was doing earlier, is when you have such closed systems like Indian villages, and Chanba is a small village, there are like 12, 1400 people there, and nothing much is happening, right? No one comes in, no one goes out. It's just there, a very, very stiff, very closed entity. So, and very traditional, something needs to happen. So my basic question was coming from skateboarding, which is actually the complete opposite of what such a closed village stands for. Skateboarding is all about, you know, finding your own way. It's like counterculture. It's a little bit rebellious. It basically has everything what an Indian village does not have. So my basic assumption or my question was, if I put a skate park as an open space there, meaning no fences, no nothing, will the skate park has the power to disrupt this village and create movement. That was my question. It was basically a social experiment. And uh, so we built the skate park. The villagers didn't know what we were building. Some of them thought we were building a swimming pool. Others thought, you know, they had no idea. We had a couple of skateboarders 
uh, with us who were helping us to build the space. They, of course, brought their skateboards. So when the first ramps were poured in, in concrete, you know, they put out their skateboards and showed the kids what they can do. And once the skate park was finished, I got from a German NGO, they gave me uh, 20 skateboards. I gave them to the kids and I said, this is yours. We had these two rules, no school, no skateboarding, because I didn't want to get in trouble with the local school, that the kids, you know, would rather spend their time at the skate park and not at school. So we made the rule, no school, no skateboarding. And we made the rule girls first, just to assure that girl, girls would get a skateboard as well. But otherwise, the kids were completely free. We had a couple of... Uh, couple of tablets. I downloaded YouTube videos because I myself, I cannot skateboard, so I needed to show them. So I gave them the tablets and then they were sitting there, you know, they were watching on the videos what these guys were doing and then they went on the skate park and, you know, were trying to do the same thing they saw on the video. You are saying mm -hmm. that the skate park, apart from actually achieving harmony between uh, gender and, and between caste was also really the starting point of some amount of economic prosperity. Absolutely. I mean, harmony is a big word. Uh, there is still, you know, change is never a tea party. There are always obstacles, ups and downs, but slowly but steadily we are climbing up the hills. So we move more forward and we move backwards. But there are uh, obstacles and we tackle them and, and, and work them out. So the skate park has not only given the kids self-confidence, it has brought social change in between the carts. They're really uh, talking to each other. The kids are eating, they are traveling, they are sleeping together. It has given the village an identity so whenever the villagers are coming to Panna, you know, and there is another article in the newspaper or they now with this Netflix movie, you know, everyone is saying, oh, it's us, you know, and they are proud. They're really proud of their village, no matter where they come from. So it has really given the village some kind of identity. It has brought in many, many people. So we have a couple of homestays. This brings money to the families because they they handle everything so they have the homestays we put in houses which really have a room where you can close the doors right not every house has a room where you can close doors so we have four or five of these homestays and they have the names of the kids it's called Arun's homestay Asha's homestay and uh, so people come and they pay the families directly Tell us a little bit more about Asha. You know, where did she come into the picture, yeah. who she was and what happened? So Asha is, uh, when we started with the skate park, she was like 16 years old. She's an Adivasi girl, comes from a really, really poor family. So below the poverty line, they have all kind of racial cards uh, you can have. And she came to the skate park when it was finished. She wasn't there when we were building, but when the skate park was finished, she was there. And we had a summer camp 
we did a summer camp for six weeks uh, the same year the skate park was built. So we ran a program in the early morning hours and in the afternoon hours. I had a couple of people from Delhi there, like English teachers. I had also musicians from Kachurao, from the music and dance festival, some people from Panna, and we made program just, you know, to get to know the kids, the people there, and how the vibes in this village uh, would work. That was an important point for me to learn better. So the kids kept coming. In the beginning, we had like 10 kids. At the end, we had like 80 kids every day. And Asha was one of them. And a friend of mine from the UK, she was there. She's a very good English teacher. So she did English sessions with the kids. And Asha really did well during these English sessions. She was really engaged. So at the very last day of the summer camp, we made little certificates, you know, and those who really did well in one way or the other, they got a little extra. And for some reason, when I gave Asha her certificate, I said, you know, you really did well in English. So she was very, very happy. And I said, you know, would you like to go to England and learn better English? This was just, again, no plan. I was just saying, and she said, yes. So Asha and me, we were really happy, you know, we were proud and we went home to Asha's house and told the parents. And the parents said, no, <laughs> no way. So this was a process of like eight months to convince them to let her go. And then, you know, it was back and forth. The entire village was up on its feet trying to have some kind of impact on the parents. But then finally, Asha's mother said, yeah, I'll let her go. And then it was Asha, the first girl, and then an Adivasi on top who got a passport in this entire village. And this was, I mean, the Yadav community, they went nuts behind the scenes. You know, they came up with the wildest ideas why Asha should not go. On the one hand, there is this interaction that brings about cultural change. The second aspect of it is connections to the outside world. So what has that been like, uh, that ride been like, and what are the advantage, pros and cons of such broad exposure to the world? I would say it's mainly pros. The cons are certainly that, you know, once in a while, I mean, when Asha came back from UK, for a while she had the nickname Queen of Chanba. Because, you know, she just acted like the Queen of Janva. But over conversations over and over again, we really made her understand that whatever we do, even though if we work with single families, single kids, it always needs to serve the community. And this is something they have understood. And in general, I would say that the village kids, even though they've been traveling all over India now, some of them have been traveling abroad, they love their village and they are happy if they can make a decent life in the village. You know, the connected world uh, and, and a vision of peace and prosperity in a networked world is uh, certainly the ideal, but it has also allowed for decentralization for profit uh, for example the mining uh, industry you know you can't really tell where the headquarters are 
uh, and uh, they are exploiting the the, the earth resources. Uh, and uh, if there's a protest in one part of the world, they just move their headquarters somewhere else yes. without having to deal with the problem at, at that face. So was that something you were thinking about at that time or did that just come as a surprise? This certainly did not come as a, as a surprise. But the thing is, what became really very, very clear to me in these days, that all these decentralized structures do not function if there is no transparency, if there is no collaboration or co-creation, if there is no participation of the people at all. So I believe until today, if we are transparent, if we trust the network, things will balance out. Things will balance out. Yes, there are dark holes, so to speak, on the internet, but we have them in real life as well. So, yes, I also have to admit that with these tech giants like Google or Facebook, there is some kind of commercialization of the entire thing. But still, you know, this, this concept of resonance, if someone puts something into the network and it creates resonance, it pops up. So there is this, this simple possibility that any voice can be heard. And we see this over and over and over again. So if you practice this right, I think you're on a very, very safe path through life. Given the title of this podcast, Where Dreams Come From, I must ask you, Ulrike, are you living a dream? Uh, I, if I talk about myself, uh, no, I just do what I want to do. Uh, I hear from others, yeah, you have a good life. Uh, I'm happy with what I do and uh, that, that's the most important thing, you know. I've never done anything which I did not like. So uh, it's a nice way of living, this I can say. Ulrike Reinhardt, thank you so much for taking this hour with me. Thank you, it was a pleasure. After speaking with Ulrike Reinhardt, in some ways I'm reminded of E.F. Schumacher's 1973 book, Small is Beautiful. No doubt Ulrike has chosen to make an impact in a small village in India. However, upon closer examination, it is not hard to see that her work is not devoid of the world at large at all. As a matter of fact, it is an effort to provide a community in the margins the opportunity to be connected to live lives within the context of this world, here and now. Ulrike's journey led her to a remote village in India, where she discovered purpose in disrupting outdated practices and opening up possibilities for rural youth through skateboarding, who would have most probably continued on the path of a domestic village life in poverty, now competes in national and international arenas. Her story is seen in screens big and small, and she is not the only one. A door has opened. This episode was edited by Scott Albom. For Media for Change, I am Sanjeev Chatterjee.